This is an ABC podcast. We all know governments are quite another thing than the people of a country. So spare a thought for the Russians. They watched their resources being plundered by kleptocrats and now they're reverting to watching what they say publicly. Having to be so careful must be so isolating. Hi, I'm Amanda Vanstone and this is Counterpoint. Russian energy has been keeping the lights on across much of Europe and some now argue that nuclear power is inevitably, inevitably a growing part of the future. Perhaps people turn away from that idea because images of nuclear explosions are so powerful, haunting, even awe-inspiring. There's an ascetic grandeur to them. Ascetic values may, in fact, trump moral values. Not in a crazy way, just in the overall sense. And we don't like to hear of Greenland's ice cap melting, we think. But they can take advantage of that. But first, to the great tragedy that Putin has delivered to the Russian people. We are heading towards a year for the war in Ukraine. Some people thought it would be over pretty quickly. Clearly the Russians did. Others didn't. But that matters very little. We are where we are. And we have to look at where we want to go from here. That poses the interesting question about what to do with Russia generally. I'm not talking about Putin, he's the leader. That's a different matter from the Russian people. A lot of us make that mistake. We judge a people by its government. Uh Uh-uh, bad idea. Anyway, we've spoken to Mary Dzhevsky before. She's been a correspondent in Russia, spent plenty of time living there and therefore knows a fair bit about it, more than me for sure. And we're going to talk to her now about the tragedy of Russia. Mary Dzhevsky, what are some of the obvious tragedies that Russians are facing now? There are so many tragedies, but I think that one that strikes me the most is that we're 30 years, three decades and a bit more since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And for pretty much all those years, I was visiting Russia for so many years through that period, and Mm. I was based there between 89 and 92 as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And it was a steady progression that you could see. I'm not talking about the governments. I'm talking about Mm. at the sort of popular, ordinary, everyday level. And Mm. what I seemed to see was each year that I went, you saw a Russia that was getting closer and closer to what it really wanted to be, which was sort of accepted as European. Mm. I have a friend in Italy who's been involved in foreign affairs for some time who raised this issue with me last time he was here in Australia. And he said, look, I don't know why people don't get it. The Russian people are not looking to have their holidays in Shanghai. They are looking to have their holidays in Europe. They are essentially European. But for so long, Mary, we've looked at Russia as being the other outside of us. And maybe that's coloured how the West has dealt with them. No, I think it definitely has. And, you know, one of the things that you see so clearly when you travel around Russia, you know, as we used to be able to do, and I can't imagine Mm. when, you know, I'll be able to travel around Russia again. But when it was possible to do that, I traveled all over, north to south, Arctic to the Black Sea, to the Pacific coast. And one of the things that strikes you is, you know, even when you go to Vladivostok, which is a lot closer to you than it is to me, you are seeing an identifiably European city on the Pacific. It looks like a Victorian city. That was when it was founded and that's what it looks like. And all those people, they looked to the West culturally, linguistically and aspirationally, I would say. And 
in a way, both they and we have now put paid to that, both because of the war, but before the war, when we were sort of rejecting treating Russians as Europeans, the government and the leadership and Putin, they were showing us, trying to show us that they had an alternative. And largely that was demonstrative. In a way, it was to try and show Europe and the United States that if need be, and if we froze them out, then Russia would turn in the opposite direction towards the east and towards China. And what we're looking at now, you know, I wouldn't say that we're looking at any sort of formal alliance between Russia and China. I think there are too many differences between them. But what we are seeing, a Russia that has taken itself out of Europe and that we, in a way, pushed out of Europe before that happened. Mm. Well, let's get on to the question of how they might have been pushed out of Europe, and in particular in relation to NATO. You've got a view that there's a point at which, uh, namely when the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO, if not disbanded, there should have been open discussions about the possibility of doing that because the threat to the West was gone. But the maintenance of it, coupled with maybe the US boast, as you say, of having won the Cold War, you see as being a mistake because it's said to Russians generally, you know, you're not us. You might have broken up the Soviet Union, but you're not us. And that could have been a mistake. Is is that a fair way of describing what you think? Yes, absolutely. I think it was a colossal mistake because what we had watched from the West, we'd watched East and Central Europe move away from communism, mostly peacefully. And we'd seen the Warsaw Pact disbanded And then we saw the collapse of the Soviet Union and its disintegration into its 15 republics, the biggest of which was Russia. And it seemed to me that when the Warsaw Pact was dissolved, that was the time when NATO and the leadership of NATO should have said, even if they didn't say, right, the whole purpose of NATO is now at an end. The Cold War is over There's no reason for an alliance to counter the Soviet East Bloc alliance. And it seems to me that then, even if NATO wasn't disbanded, that was the opportunity for a complete rethink about security in Europe. Mm. And, you know, I understand why that didn't happen. You know, there are some very good, both practical and really ethical reasons why that didn't happen. And the practical reasons were that... When the Warsaw Pact was disbanded and when the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of 1991, people in Europe and the United States had huge things on their mind. There was a question of whether the Soviet Union was going to disintegrate peacefully. There was a real concern that there were going to be millions of refugees moving westwards, that there was going to be famine in the former Soviet Union, that there were going to be nuclear weapons really on the loose with people being able to pick them up or sell them or their expertise. There was an enormous amount that was going on. Yeah. Now, do you think it's fair to say that at some point Putin was open to a better relationship with the West. I mean, he was very responsive after the terrorist attacks in the United States, been a couple of other occasions. And in your eyes, on each occasion, not enough reciprocity has been given to those, if you like, welcoming gestures. Yes. I mean, I think there have been two big problems here. One of them is that whenever Putin has put out sort of olive branches or peace overtures, which I think he did most conspicuously immediately after 9-11, when he was the first foreign leader to call President Bush and offer not just his condolences, but also you know anything that Russia could do. And there was a sense in which Russia could potentially do things because Afghanistan, and bin Laden was in a way closer to Russia. And Russia had a whole lot of expertise and experience that, you know, it wasn't complete fantasy to think that Russia could actually be helpful in some way there. But the other reason, I think, is that Western leaders, for the most part, found it very, very difficult to see the world how Putin and how Russia saw it. 
they seem not to have understood how the expansion of NATO, and I'm perpetually warned and told we're not talking about the expansion of NATO, we're talking about the choices of sovereign nations to join NATO, not NATO expansion as an alliance. And that's true. But if you look at it from Moscow, what you see from Moscow's perspective is you see what, in their view, has always been a hostile, threatening and very powerful alliance drawing ever closer to Russia's western borders. Now, Mary, let's not miss out on your knowledge of the people and what it's like living there. What have you seen in terms of the Russian people? I mean, you saw a resurgence and presumably now that's falling apart. Can you just share with us what the cities were like that you were visiting? Yes, I mean, one of the things that I've sort of felt in a lot of the discussions of Russia, not just now, but in recent years, has been that there's been an awful lot of focus on the big scale economy and how Russia really needs to reform itself. It needs to diversify its economy away from oil and gas and minerals, and it needs to become a modern economy. Well, you know, to my mind, this is actually ignoring what's actually been happening in Russia, especially over the last 20 years, what you've seen is an awful lot of diversification of the Russian economy, especially of the consumer economy. And I think one of the problems is that because the United States and Britain and the English-speaking world generally, its dealings with Russia on the commercial level have been mostly in those sectors. But for the French and the Germans and other Europeans and elsewhere, they've been dealing with Russia and setting up supermarkets, chains of familiar brand shops in all sorts Mm. of sectors. And every time, you know, every time I went to Russia over those years, you would see a new Western brand or new Western ways. And, you know, you just felt that... uh, Each time I went, there were more supermarkets. As it were, the consumer experience for Russians was becoming more and more like it was for Western consumers generally. Let's look at the sort of bad things at the moment. We've got the economy in a bit of trouble. We've got issues about energy supply for them and to others. We've got lots of professionals leaving If they haven't already left, they're planning to get out. Academics and students not happy. So all of that is a bad thing, but none of that is as bad as the last thing you mentioned, and that is that the professionals who haven't left are now going back to living in sort of two worlds, one where they can think one thing, but they have to speak in another because of the way the government works. And in other words... You can't live your life as fully because you have to be careful what you say to whom. Now, that is a chilling change for anyone to undergo. What do you think the consequences will be for the professionals in Russia once they realise this is happening to them if they don't already? Well, I think they realise very well. And I think that the fact that so many of them are watching their words shows the enormous pressure that they feel they're under. Because on the one hand, there is loyalty to the state and you know they're being presented with their state at war. And they see and have seen in recent years, they've seen Ukraine being armed, as they see it, by the West, by NATO countries, and they see that as a threat. They see that as a direct threat to Russia. And so when Putin appeals to public sentiment and for loyalty and for all the rest of it, you know, they are drawn in that direction. But at the same time, over the last 30 years, they've become closer and closer and closer to operating in exactly the same terms that Western academics and politicians and everybody operates in. And, you know, I felt in a way it's particularly tragic that the last time I was there was just over a year ago. And I felt at the gathering that I was at, which is, you know, politicians and academics and think tankers, that almost we had a common language. We were speaking in the same registers, in the same terms, and we were meaning mm. the same thing. No, I understand what you're saying. Almost, I you know, understand what you're saying. And far, a you know, sameness. 
ever before. And yet, less than a year later, you're watching those same people making the sort of compromises that their parents had to make in Soviet times and their grandparents had to make. And what's so dispiriting in a way is how easily they've been able to switch back into that register, which, you know, people like me hoped had gone forever, but it hasn't. But Mary, I think it's important we remember what you and I were talking about earlier, and that is that at heart, they are essentially European. So simply because this tragedy's happened, they've slipped back into leading a life the way their parents had to, with the private self and the public self Mm -hmm. and all of that, but they're not un-European because of that. And I think there is still hope for the West to find ways, to work at finding ways to bring Russia into the fold. It won't be easy. It won't be short term. It's not as if if Putin goes, everything's going to be rosy. It's an aim for, you know, a decade or two to come. If you don't aim for that, what are you going to aim for? No, absolutely. But I think one of the things we also have to be really clear about is that that doesn't just depend on what happens in Russia. It depends on us as well. And No, that's my point. We it, have to work to yes. recognise and find ways. Anyway, Mary Dzerzhevsky, thanks for joining us again today. That's a pleasure. Mm, there's a lot of Russian energy and it's supplying Europe, but what else could they use? Talk, talk, talk. There's endless talk about cleaner energy. Mm, But not so much about one much cleaner energy, and that is nuclear power. Oh, no, we don't want to go there, people say, so they just don't talk about it. So we can have a full-on debate about climate change and cleaner energy, but not so full-on as to go there. Now, what is holding people back and what would be sensible? especially for Europe, because Europe is in the grip of Russian energy. To talk about that, we're going to be joined by Matteo Shalapek-Sawillo. He's joined us before. He's a freelance speechwriter and has a very keen interest in European politics. Matteo Shalapek-Sawillo, what are the naive assumptions people make about Putin and Ukraine and those that his invasion of Ukraine have pretty much brought to an end. They've had a reality check, a slap in the face. What are those assumptions? Yes. Well, Amanda, I think that a lot of European diplomats and observers of European politics had, yes, a whole bunch of assumptions about, for example, war being a thing of the past on the European continent and about people... That's gone. (laughs) Well, that is gone, indeed. And about leaders and individuals responding rationally to incentives. And I think we've seen in Vladimir Putin, someone who doesn't really respond and behave very rationally. And I think perhaps there's a separate conversation to be had about, well, maybe if we'd spent a little bit more time listening to Central and Eastern Europeans and what they've been saying about the threats posed by Russia, perhaps we'd be in a different situation. But instead, we're in this one. I think that, you know, one of the fruits of globalization, but perhaps in the end, a slightly kind of poisonous fruit has been, I think, to delude many of us into thinking that war is a thing of the past because of the economic interdependence between nations and Mm. because of something like Europe's dependence on Russian gas that, well, Putin wouldn't do something so silly as invade Ukraine because that would be cutting off a major source of revenue into the Kremlin. But I guess what Putin knew that perhaps I don't know, maybe Brussels didn't see quite as clearly, is that Europe had allowed itself to become so dependent on Russian gas that it was quite central, in fact, to its economic model or the economic model of individual countries like Germany, that actually it was Europe that was dependent on Russia. And so it actually bore the risk. And it's more so, as I understand it anyway, Germany that's dependent on Russia. It's the French who've gone much more towards nuclear power and haven't got such a dependence on the Russians as the Germans have. But let's talk about when the best time to reduce 
dependence on Russian gas was and why that was a better time. I mean, I'm a fan of Angela Merkel's, always was, but I think she made a big mistake here with the dependence of Germany on Russian gas. But anyway, what should they have done some time ago rather than panicking now? Well, I think they should have thought much, much more clearly and much, much more strategically back in 2011, in the early part of that year after, of course, the Fukushima disaster. Amanda and many of your listeners will remember that Angela Merkel Mm. pledged then after the Fukushima disaster to decommission all of Germany's nuclear reactors. Indeed, Francois Hollande, the one-term French president, when he was running, he actually promised to cap the sort of share of France's energy, which was generated by nuclear power, which kind of seems almost sacrilegious, you'd think. But of course, he won that election. And I think it's interesting when you think back to what a foreign country almost 10 years ago or 11 years ago feels like, because to think that the risk of nuclear disaster, although of course it isn't zero because there are no zero risks, to think that that was considered by Europe's leaders a bigger danger than, as I said before, creating that dependency on Russian gas. And what that really means, of course, is creating a dependency on Vladimir Putin. Mm. Look, I suppose you could say that it reflects an optimism. I suppose you could say that actually reflected a <laughs> fundamental a kind of optimism about sort of post-Cold War mm. European integration. Well, I also think it probably made certain assumptions about Russian strength or rather the lack of Russian strength, an assumption that I think hasn't quite been borne out because, of course, you know, what's happened since then, Russia annexed Crimea, huge military buildup, and then, of course, in February, the invasion of Ukraine. So, look, <laughs> clearly... But the police turning away back then mm-hmm. has been yes. expensive, hasn't it? Because they sort of mothballed power plants. Italy shut down one it had. The French mm-hmm. set up one near the border. And, of course, Italy now pays the French through the nose for nuclear power that comes from just across the border, which is, you know, irrelevant where the plant is, isn't it? If it's within 100 miles or so of where you are, you're going to be affected if it's a disaster. So it's been a lot of stupid politicking. And that has meant that, as is often the case, indecision or hesitancy, weakness, if you like, on behalf of the political leaders means, understandably, industry doesn't invest. So they don't invest in, say, research and stuff. Do you think that's now pushed the cost up of now catching up to redo these plants or build new ones is going to be much, much more expensive because of that? I agree with you. And I think that there's quite a few different things going on. So, of course, many of your listeners, I'm sure, will know and perhaps they're screaming at whatever device they're listening to this on, Mm. that, of course, about half of the French stock of nuclear reactors are currently offline for maintenance or repairs. So, of course, that sounds like a funny kind of endorsement of nuclear. Let's do what France does and, oh, whoops, Mm. you know, half of their reactors are offline at the moment. But, of course, everything you said is right because there's a cascading effect. There is uncertainty and there is gridlock from Brussels and precisely, that dampens investment, that depresses investment, and it, yeah, it means there are fewer contracts and there's simply fewer incentives to make kind of nuclear energy a viable energy source in Europe. And then there's the question of regulation and how that affects cost. So, look, I guess obviously the, the stereotype, sorry to kind of be channeling Boris Johnson, is that, you know, Brussels has kind of never seen a rule or a regulation that it didn't like. And of course, there's many arenas and many domains in which that's important. But when it comes to nuclear energy, it's quite unique because unlike gas or unlike renewables, so much of the cost of nuclear energy is in the actual cost of building the plant mm. in the first place. Mm. And if you're facing an uncertain regulatory environment, or maybe it's a perfectly stable regulatory environment, but it's one where there's a lot of red tape and a lot of Mm -hmm. hoops to jump through, well, then those costs are going to rise and rise and rise. And so it's simply going to become not economical to construct nuclear power plants. And so I think that when critics of nuclear energy say that nuclear just can't compete with renewables or indeed with fossil fuels. You hear those arguments made as well. Look, that isn't wrong, but I think 
there's a kind of control that policymakers have because they, of course, control legislation and control regulations. They could be doing much, much more to incentivize the construction of nuclear energy in Europe. And unfortunately, they haven't been doing that. And that's partly because for the last decade or so, that direction of travel has been, you know, trending in the wrong direction. And you could argue, I mean, if you believe that the developments in science mean that the sort of accidents we've experienced in our lifetime, and all remember that you mentioned earlier, you know, Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, they're not likely to have those sorts of accidents again because the technology's moved on and it's moved on an enormous amount. So if you think this is where we ought to be going, the longer you leave it, the more your grandchildren are going to have to pay. Because even though we think the sun is an endless supply of energy, it is, I get that, but there's a limit to how much you can get in any one day. Ditto the wind. So nuclear energy, just from a non-scientist point of view, is going to play a part. And the sooner we start paying for it, the better. Look, I think you're right to say that obviously the sun, you know, won't be burning its energy forever. Of course, I believe that renewables are an absolutely critical part of our future energy mix and indeed our current energy mix. Don't get me wrong. But of course, what is the sun made of? Well, mostly it's made of hydrogen and it's made of a lot of helium as well. And they just so happen to be the key elements in, you know, the nuclear fission process. And so, look, I think when you talk about the safety of nuclear energy, the analogy that always comes to my mind when I think about it, and I say this, of course, as someone who wasn't alive for Chernobyl. I was alive for Fukushima, but I wasn't oh, alive for Chernobyl. That was more my parents' generation, although I did see the miniseries on Netflix the other year. But <laughs> the analogy that always comes to my mind, Amanda, is that it's like a plane crash. They almost mm-hmm. never happen, but when they do, we always remember them because they really trigger a particular primal kind of fear in our minds. And so we can reel off things like Chernobyl and Fukushima and Three Mile Island when, of course, the kind of boring reality, according to people, you know, like our world in data, say that if you actually kind of, yes, I do too, if you actually look at kind of how many deaths can be attributable to the generation of nuclear energy, it's on basically exactly the same level as wind and solar. And then, of course, you know, if you think about the deaths that are attributable to the pollution and the smog and the, you know, water poisoning because of fossil fuels, well, then that's just on a different order of magnitude completely. In fact, in 2018, Harvard University attributed almost 20% of all deaths worldwide to the effects of pollution generated by fossil fuels. Mm. I think it's a bit like, this might sound a bit weirdo, Matteo, but it's how I think about it, that if you give people the choice, most people prefer to die in their sleep than in a car crash where the crashed vehicles settle out and you can't get out. One seems to be horrific and the other is, well, it's going to happen, so okay. And I suspect that because of these accidents that have happened and exactly what you say, they were pretty ugly and they stick in our mind, that's made us frightened of that rather than considering what accidents now would be like or imagining that that doesn't happen to very many people so it's silly for you to go to bed every night thinking you're going to be burnt up in a car accident and it's equally Mm. silly to go to bed every night thinking you're going to be blown to bits in a nuclear power plant accident. But emotion rules our brains. I mean, you know that. Well, absolutely. We're ruled by passions and not necessarily by reason. No, that's true. I love it when I hear academics say that they're, you know, Give me science. I'm just looking at the facts. And, you know, we all know full well that emotion plays a big part in which facts (laughs) they care to look at. Yes. Look, clearly this is quite a simplification, but so much of the story of human progress, if we look at things like the Industrial Revolution and all of the kind of step changes since then, they're really stories about energy abundance. And they're really about being able to generate more energy and then harness that to... Mm-hmm. you know, light our homes and power our factories and build yeah. cars that sort of, you know, increase our quality of life. And so I think that, again, you know, I almost think that we can think of people who advocate for emissions reduction in kind of two ways. There's the sort of conservationist 
who want to reduce the amount of energy mm-hmm. we use. But then I think there's a class of people who are much more excited, much more interested in decoupling the idea of energy from emissions. So they talk about reducing emissions, but they don't talk about reducing energy. Because again, <laughs> look, it's all well and good for us in Australia to be kind of talking about, look, not using so much energy. But there is a hell of a lot of the world that still needs much, much more energy because they're yeah. actually part of the developing world. And, you know, they need to keep the lights on. And to them, electrifying, you know, their society is actually key to increasing their standard of yeah. living. Yeah. So I think that there's a really, really important case to be made for energy abundance. And I think nuclear provides us with a chance to achieve that and to realize that opportunity while actually decoupling from emissions. And then I think, look, there's the kind of narrower but still really kind of optimistic argument, which is, look, Europe hasn't had a great decade. You know, you could talk about Germany deciding to sort of close its nuclear plants, but there's been a financial crisis. There's Mm. been, you know, obviously the pandemic and the lingering effects of that. And then, of course, there's been Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I think Europe actually historically has been a little bit of a leader in nuclear, France in particular. I think there's a real opportunity here for Europe to kind of reinforce that leadership role, to take a technology that's kind of at the leading edge of innovation and to say, yes, we are going to embrace this. We are going to do this. We believe that this holds the key to really kind of unlocking, you know, economic growth and innovation and basically to help turn things around because it's not been a great decade for a lot of Europeans. And I think that nuclear might be one of the answers. Well, there's an upside. Look at both sides. That's fair enough. Matteo Slapek-Zuilo, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure, Amanda. Thank you. Here's the rant for this week. Live your own life, not someone else's. We all dislike busybodies, sticking their beaks into other people's lives, especially ours. Poor sods, they miss out on really living their life. But we can all do well to focus on the life we have, not the one we might have hoped for or used to have. You might have once been married, now you're single. Perhaps you wanted to be rich or you wanted to be a famous author or whatever. Don't waste your life moping over the dream that didn't come true. Live the life you've got and live it well. By the way, when you're living your life, presumably you want to live by decent moral values. We all think that's important. But maybe aesthetic values are more important. When we think about what is of value in the world, sometimes we might go to, well, a good moral life, a good life is important, a moral one. But what does that mean? Are your morals the same as mine? Now, Tom Cochran is a senior lecturer in the College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences at Flinders University here in my state of South Australia. And he's written a piece called Attuned to the Aesthetic. And he actually thinks that the ultimate value of the world can be discovered if you're sensitive to what is beautiful. And so we're going to talk to him about this. He wrote a book recently, The Aesthetic Value of the World. Tom Cochran, you say the ultimate value of the world can be discovered if you're sensitive to what is beautiful. Some things that are beautiful are very harmful though, aren't they? You know, I'm thinking of volcanoes, thunderstorms, even, for example, snakes, of which I'm probably terrified, have their own yes. beauty and aesthetic, but they're not good for me. You're absolutely right to point out that many of the things in the world are harmful and dangerous, and it's a challenge to accommodate ourselves towards them. The particular examples that you raise, things like volcanoes, is actually one of the classic aesthetic categories, however, It's known as the sublime. So I think a lot of people are fascinated by these phenomenon. We like to stare in wonder at images of volcanoes. 
you know, if there's a lightning storm happening, often we might stand on our porches and watch it for a while because these things are absolutely thrilling. So actually, that's a really great example of the way in which although something can be harmful to our practical interests, we don't want to really go out into the storm. We don't want to get struck by lightning or no. the volcano. <laughs> But we're still somehow able to transcend those practical interests and find these things amazing, fantastic, beautiful to look at. Yeah. Now, how do you not dismiss but relegate a moral value to be lower than the aesthetic? Because if someone behaves in what I see as a moral way, they're a good and decent person, they do the right thing when they possibly can, yeah. yada, yada, yada. Doesn't that mean they're a good person? Isn't of that a great value? Why do you say this aesthetic is more value than a moral value? So I do want to make it clear that I'm not a psychopath. If there was a, <laughs> a burning building, I would save the baby before the last copy of Shakespeare's works. <laughs> I wouldn't go around murdering people just to make a beautiful artwork. So the point about priority is just that in answer to certain questions, I think aesthetic value takes priority, that it really comes to the fore. And the particular issue where I think aesthetic value has priority is what makes this a good world? Why is this a world that we can embrace and celebrate? Yes. So when you ask something like that, I think moral value does very badly, right? There's many things that are just morally awful. And I think when you tot up the ledger, you'll see that we're probably in the negative when it comes to moral value. In contrast, I think the world is super abundant in aesthetic value. In fact, I go so far as to say that literally everything has aesthetic value. And so it's because of this much wider scope that aesthetic value has that I think it has this priority. Also, when it comes to articulating a positive value to the world, I think you have to draw on aesthetic value. Moral value seems to be well, more about well, avoiding negative value than actually embracing positive value. Well, yes, in the sense that you say don't kill other people, but yeah. a moral point might be to do good where you can. That's not uh -huh. a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. I guess I need to be a bit more specific. So when you help someone, typically what you're doing is you're avoiding harm for them or you're trying to make their life oh, yes. a little bit comfortable. Yes, yes. So in that sense... The moral aspect of it is a sort of return to equality. But in terms of actually, you know, doing something nice for someone or, you know, improving their practical interests, you're not really in the zone of morality so much as the kind of practical egotistical concerns. So alongside the moral and the aesthetic, we have the practical or prudential interest. And certainly when it comes to your own life, you're going to be pursuing your own practical interests probably most of the time. It's the question of where, where moral value sits in relation to that and where aesthetic value sits in relation to that. One of the things I found, well, I say, interesting and amusing in your article, amusing as in the sense of not lighthearted, but in a lighthearted way made me think more, mm -hmm. was the reference to you know, mice and frogs and flies and worms who've all got their reason to be here and all in their own way are particularly beautiful. Worms is the one I'm not so sure about. But if you're into the close-up photography, I forget what they call it, macro photography, yeah. flies, any sort of bug really, frogs and mice are just absolutely beautiful. And I'm sure some worms are too. Certainly ones you see in the lower reaches of the ocean are spectacular. But we yeah. don't think of them that way, do we? Why do we think of an aesthetic as being beautiful in a positive way? So if someone says, for example, oh, yes, you know, Joe is good at doing up houses. He has a great eye for the aesthetic, meaning uh -huh. what's beautiful. But in fact, some of the things we think are not beautiful are. Why don't we get that, that aesthetic value can cover everything? Right. There's some things that prima facie we think of as ugly and disgusting. Yeah. Worms and flies, things like this. And as you know, these things can also be fascinating. There are scientists who devote their entire careers to just investigating worms. Sure. <laughs> And they wouldn't do that unless they found it incredibly fascinating to do so. So what's happening seems to be that we're able to shift in our perspective. So, yes, if I'm cooking food in my kitchen, I don't want there to be any worms around. No. I want to keep those out. But if I'm able to put myself in a different sort of context and a different frame of mind, 
then I'm able to appreciate these things for their own sake and see that indeed they have incredible complexity and intricacies of bodily features. And those are really quite beautiful to look at. Right. So you're not actually saying that moral values don't have any place or any other set of values don't have any place. Just when it comes down to the crunch, it's the ascetic value that is all around us all the time. In a sense, all omnipotent, it's always there. Yeah, that's if why I we, think that's an ultimate value. Yeah, we soak it up and because it is always there, we're a part of it and recognise that, then that is the ultimate value. Right. And I absolutely want to say that there is a place for the other values. I mean, you couldn't live on aesthetic value alone. No. You need to have that, in a sense, in the background when life is going badly, when things are hard. I think it's there as a cushion that you can rest on. You can say, okay, my life might not be going so well, but at least there is this out there in the world. that, And that reconciles us to some extent with problems of life. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that there are people like you here that think about these sorts of things, Tom, because I have to tell you, I don't normally. And it would never have occurred to me to think of ascetic value as being the all-encompassing one. And your article on the conversation we've had has led me to take a new look on things. And that's when I think someone's done a good job, when you can encourage people to open their mind and think a little bit differently. And you've done that. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Speaking of aesthetics, if you haven't seen some fabulous photos of Greenland, get on the web. It's beautiful. Have you ever been to Greenland? When you look at some of the photographs, it is just beautiful. But it's a place where an enormous amount of ice cover has been melting for a very, very long time, decades in fact. Now, what that means is that maybe some sediment, not maybe it does, comes with the ice. What to do? That's the question. To find out more about that, we're going to have a chat with Moira Donovan. She's an independent journalist and radio producer and she lives on the east coast of Canada. Moira Donovan, have you been to Greenland? I never have. Um, some parts of it feel sort of familiar to me in a way. I mean, the sort of seaside communities that you see in Greenland represented in images, they look a lot like some of the towns that I'm familiar with. Parts of Greenland also look a lot like Canada, but I've never been to Greenland and it honestly looks like a spectacular place. I'd love to go. It does, doesn't it? Someone said to me recently, I'd like to go to Greenland. And I looked perplexed and said, why? And I've seen some of these photos and it makes me think, yes, I want to go. But then I have a reality check and think, yep, this photographer was up in a helicopter with a fantastic <laughs> lens and I won't be. So maybe it isn't as beautiful just to walk around as a person. I don't know. Now, all this ice melting, that's going into water and going over the sides of the mountains or the, the mainland anyway and into the fjords. What does that mean? So this is a question that researchers have been looking into because they've realized about seven years ago that unlike other Arctic coastlines, which are eroding very rapidly, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will have seen images of the Arctic coastlines that are just falling into the sea, Greenland's coast was going in the other direction. It was actually kind of moving outward. And what is happening there is that the Greenlandic ice sheet, which, you know, shrank for the 26th year in a row um, this year, which once covered 80% of Greenland, is melting. And that is causing the sediment that is underneath the ice sheet that is being sort of ground into sand by the enormous weight of all that ice is just pushing all that sediment into the sea. It's flowing along it like a river. The researcher who's done this work, Meta Bendixson, said it's like a tap that's pouring not only water but also sediment, depositing it along the coastline of Greenland. And it's so much sediment, it's actually about 10% of what the world needs every year for sand and sediment, which is a huge amount. There's an enormous demand for this. So yeah, essentially that melting ice sheet is just dumping sand along the Greenlandic coastline. Sure. Now, many people think of sand, especially in Australia, because we're in 
you know, island nation and sands sort of everywhere. And, and many people don't realise just how special a resource it is that most of the things we build have got sand in there somewhere. And if you've got a lot of sand, good on you, you can make money out of it. Is that how the Greenlanders are looking at it? Yeah, I mean, there have been two studies now done by this research group, but it's still kind of in its early days in that they're looking at the possibility of developing an industry. But I think the attitude that was investigated in the most recent work they've done, which was a survey of about a thousand Greenlandic adults, which is 2.5% of the population, a telephone survey of their attitudes towards this, and the vast majority of people were supportive of it, almost 90%, especially if the projects doing so were under Greenlandic control. But it seems to be the attitude is sort of, yeah, as you said, they've got the resource, why not exploit it? They have their own reasons for really wanting to do resource development in Greenland. And I think, you know, a lot of people see this as an avenue that is less harmful than some of the resource extraction that's taken place in Greenland in the past. Sure. I mean, they come up as a, a source for rare earth and uranium mines. They've got them in the south. Mm-hmm. But what happened was the Greenlanders weren't getting the money from that and the mine was shut down. Is there a view that the sand mining could go ahead provided Greenland's in charge and gets a fair crack of the money out of it? Yeah, it seems like that's how the majority of people see it, that they're okay with these kinds of projects moving forward. Obviously, you know, people would still want to see environmental assessments done. There's good reason to think that sand extraction in Greenland would not be as environmentally destructive as it is in other places where it really does cause ecological harm. It's being deposited in Greenland so fast that there's nothing living in it. It's not like you'd be destroying habitat by sucking up the Mm -hmm. sand. So there's good potential there for an activity that is not ecologically damaging. But yeah, I mean, even the more recent kind of resource development that's happened in Greenland since they, you know, passed an act on self-determination in 2009, that has not really benefited the people of Greenland necessarily. So the people that I spoke to who express, I guess, cautious, qualified support for this say, Mm. if it's going to happen, it really needs to be with the support and ownership of Greenlandic people. Moira, I hadn't realised until I'd read this piece that more than half of Greenland's revenue comes from a block grant from the Danish government. You raise that because it follows from that that mining projects have been put to Greenlanders as a way of ensuring greater economic independence. But do you happen to know how that came about, that the Danish government was forking out so much? Well, as I understand it, it has to do with the history of Greenland as a territory of Denmark. And there's a kind of colonial relationship there. And so even as Greenland moved towards independence with this act in 2009, they didn't have the structures in place to yet have economic independence. And so that's a legacy of that really longstanding colonial relationship. And I think you know, from what I understand from talking to people, there's a desire for a greater degree of autonomy from Denmark, you know, more authority over decision-making. They already have a lot of autonomy, but they want more, which is understandable in lots of ways. The way to do that is to have economic independence. And in a place like Greenland, where as it stands, a lot of the economy that's not already coming from mining is in fishing, you know, you do need to look at maybe some of these large-scale projects as a way of achieving that economic independence. And I think even the 2021 election where the party that opposed a big uranium mine came to power because they opposed the mine, they're still in this place of tension where they're trying to, you know, have a balance between continuing to foster that economic independence and that revenue that comes from resource extraction while also respecting people's wishes to not degrade the environment through these large-scale projects. Mm. Maura, I think this question brings up the complexity of decision-making faced by politicians all around the world. And just in the example of this sand mining question in Greenland, you only have to look at the photos, you don't have to have been there, to see how beautiful the place is outside of sand mining, but also how beautiful some of the sand deposits that have come down and are now in the fjords, how absolutely beautiful they are. And you can understand a group of wise people around a table and one of them saying, look, 
maybe the sand wasn't there in the beginning, but it's a natural phenomenon that's happening and we shouldn't disturb it. Another will say, well, look, it's only been in the last 20 years, as you say, we won't be disturbing an ecosystem if we take away this sand. And another wise person says, yes, well, what's it all going to look like when we have taken it away? And I'm not sure that any of us really know the answer to that. We know that Greenland needs the money. We know that we need the we, the world at large, needs the sand. I just hope they go about it in a cautious way. I'm not saying they should be stuck with what they've got and it's better mining sand than the other stuff, but I don't know. How do you feel about that? Do you think this is a good example of the competing issues that come into play? I think you've really touched on it there, actually. It's an example of the kinds of trade-offs that communities all around the world are facing, especially, you know, with accelerating climate change. I mean, everything we do, especially now, you know, we just passed this milestone of 8 billion people on the planet. Everything we do has some kind of impact. And there are, you know, potentially better and worse ways to interact with the planet and to impact it. And I think for a lot of Greenlanders, it's an instance of, you know, there's 56,000 of them. They certainly haven't caused climate change. They're suffering the effects. And if they're going to be suffering the effects, maybe this is a relatively low impact way for them to reap some of the benefits. But I think given the worldview of a lot of people that I'd read about and people I'd spoken to, you know, unless something drastic were to happen, I think people will proceed very cautiously on this. Mm. There still has to be a business case proven for it too, which is a whole other thing, but people don't want to just perpetuate a legacy of environmental harm that, no. you know, a lot of Greenlanders feel badly about by pursuing this new avenue. So I think, you know, if it does happen, it will be done with caution. I hope so. I mean, there's another wise person at the table who says, look, get over it, you guys. The world has been changing since we've been recording what's been happening from when cavemen started doing sort of rock painting type things and it's going to continue to change. Yes, we have to change as sensibly as we can, but those people who think the world can stay as it is are perhaps in dreamland rather than greenland. Maura Donovan, thanks for joining us today on Counterpoint. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That's the program for this week. Thanks for joining us. And I hope you join us again next week. If you've got something to tell us, hop onto the ABC site, go to RN, follow the prompts and tell us what you want to tell us. Until next week, this is Amanda Vanstone saying see you later. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.